This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. This is New Books in Science Fiction. And for anyone counting, it's our 76th episode and the 53rd that I've had the honor to host. Today is the Jade is Thicker Than Water episode, and I'm speaking with Fonda Lee, author of Jade City, which was shortlisted for this year's Nebula Award for Best Novel. Fonda actually had two books up for the Nebula this year. Her young adult novel, Exo, was a finalist for the Andre Norton Award. And in 2015, her debut novel, Zero Boxer, was also an Andre Norton Award finalist. Jade City is Fonda's first book specifically written for adult readers. It combines what I've heard her call the three M's, mafia, magic, and martial arts. And I am delighted that she's on the line with me now from her home in Oregon. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. It's great to have you. Jade City is set in the fictional island of Kekan, which is governed both by a political body called the Royal Council and by traditional clans, which are gangster families, and they take loyalty oaths and they have honor codes, and they aren't afraid to resort to violence to maintain order. The world you've created has both familiar elements. There's a lot of mid-20th century tech, like televisions and landline phones. But the uh, Kekanese also have something very special, jade. So that's where I thought we should start. Can you talk about jade's importance in the story and the power it gives the green bones, who are the Kekanese, who are the ones allowed to wear it and who are trained in the proper way to use it? Yeah, so uh, in many ways, Jade City was a wish fulfillment exercise for me because um, I have been practicing martial arts for a very long time, and I'm also a big fan of kung fu movies. And I felt like a lot of the movies that I watched were false advertising because I'd been training in martial arts for so long and was like, hey this isn't fair. I can't run up walls. I can't leap from building to building. I can't do chi blasts. What is this? I I felt kind of misled by all the amazing magical powers that the characters in uh, martial arts films seem to exhibit that I could not achieve no matter how much training I put in. And uh, I figured there must be, this is the fantasy writer brain in me, deciding there must be um, some special factor, some magic um, element that's at work here that clearly I don't have access to. And uh, I started sort of envisioning this idea of a world that was 
built around um, these amazing martial arts um, powers and how that would actually play out if I were to create a a world where that made sense. Um, and so Jade was very quickly the natural choice for me in terms of what's the magic substance that's like the X factor here. And the reason for that is you know, fantasy literature has had this long tradition of magic substances. There's always the magic sword or magic crystal or gemstones. And in um, Eastern culture, jade is considered more valuable than any other substance. Um, it's uh, It's been referred to as the stone of heaven. It has this long um, tradition of being viewed with a as a spiritual substance, a link between heaven and earth. So it was already figuratively magical in um, in our world in in eastern culture and history so i made it literally magical um, in the fantasy world that i created of kcon um you know one of the things that i find frustrating slash annoying about some fantasy stories is this idea that the magic is just given and you you are sort of born with it, if you will, or you you gain it. Um, you get get the magic sword, and now you have the power. And um, as you know, any martial artist knows, uh, achieving a level of proficiency involves a long, arduous amount of um, discipline and and. Uh, um, schooling. So um, what I wanted to do was kind of combine this idea of the magic substance with also a culture around training these um, these characters who might be born with some innate ability to wear the jade, but still have to go through these years and years of training in order to be able to harness it. And there's a whole meritocracy around um, being able to tolerate the jade and to harness it because if you don't have that ability it also has these horrible side effects uh, that can lead to madness and death well you have explained in the story that there are six disciplines that the greenbone fighters develop their expertise in through this schooling process things like strength and steel perception lightness there are a couple others, and it would be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about why you decided to emphasize these particular disciplines. And I, I assume, perhaps or perhaps not, some of that was informed by your own personal knowledge of martial arts. I'd be curious to hear how uh, your own experience, and you've shared some of that now already with uh, investment you've made in, in the training, has informed your invention of the art of using jade properly in your story? So I came up with the six disciplines really as a kind of a way to explain and divide the types of superhuman powers that jade could endow someone with if they were properly trained. And uh, when I had my book launch, I actually went through old kung fu movie clips and took little examples out of them to illustrate each of the six disciplines because they really kind of come from um or the magic abilities that you do see in in kind of like 
the the classic kung fu films and movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, so strength, right? You often see those characters who are able to just have to punch through a wall with a with a single punch or you know, bend a steel bar. That was kind of the an obvious one. Um, steel you know, would be like the example of um, be having having the super invulnerability, right? You see the characters in action films like smash into a table and they break the table and they get up and they seem fine. Um, perception is that sort of magic sixth sense where you see the kung fu master go into some uh, room and. You know, he knows there's an assassin in the rafters because he can like sense another heartbeat in the room or you know he's able to fight blindfolded so perception was kind of the embodiment of that um, deflection is the almost like a telekinetic ability right it's the 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 chi blast or or the force powers that you see in like star wars which are very much also derived from um from some of that tradition um and then we have lightness um running up the walls leaping great distances jumping from tree to tree uh you know that um element and which one am i missing uh, i think uh, channeling and channeling Right, channeling being kind of the energy flow, the chi blast, that sort of mystical uh, fight. If you remember the end of Kill Bill, uh, when the bride does the five strike, whatever it's called, and the person walks away and their heart bursts. So those are, they're all very much derived from um, the magic, mystical martial arts powers that uh, that sort of form the basis of the more fanciful martial arts films and stories out there. One thing that's interesting about your Greenbone characters is that these clans are also business enterprises. And it occurred to me, and in looking at your biography, that you've also had experience in business as a consultant before you dive full-time into writing. And I thought maybe some of these disciplines are also not only good for mano-a-mano battles, but, for instance, perception might be something that's helpful in a business negotiation where you can tell if someone maybe isn't telling the truth. Oh, definitely. I envisioned the clans as being um, really this both military and business organization. Um, And a lot of the business maneuverings and negotiations and backroom dealings um, came as much from other mafia films that I've loved, um, like The Godfather, for example, where, you know, there's not a, there's not overly large amount of violence. Yes, there's violence, but when it comes, it comes pretty suddenly and as this punctuation to a lot of this sort of backroom maneuvering and political conflict that's also going on. So the clans, as I envision them, have modernized in the sense that they are they are multifaceted and they've got a lot of economic interests as well as um, military ones. And so I wanted the story to really proceed on all those levels um, where the, the Jade Warriors, yes, they have these martial abilities, but um, they've also developed these networks um, that historically were used for um, military purposes, but have evolved into being really business networks and groups. And uh, I think that those scenes were just as much fun and as much 
filled with as much tension as some of the action scenes. The book's action centers on the Call family who run the No Peak clan. That's one of the largest clans on Kekon. And the other large clan is the Mountain clan. And at one time, they were united in a war for independence, which they eventually won. But they end up over time and ultimately in the course of your book at war with each other. I thought we could talk a little bit about how the clans work and how their relationship and the culture of the island affects the main characters in your story, who are three biological siblings and an adopted sibling who are the next generation, the up-and-coming generation for the No Peak clan. And they all seem to end up in roles that they don't exactly seem to want to be in or feel 100% comfortable in as the story goes on. But it seems as if custom and family ties and honor compel them to follow through in these roles. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that, about the kinds of conflicts that your main characters experience and the power of culture and custom in their lives? Yeah, so that is a a big question and very much um, part of the vision that I had from the book from the beginning, which is I knew from the start that this was going to be a story about family and that it would be about a new generation um, coming into power and dealing with the legacy of prior generations. So uh, KCON is a post-colonial setting in that this was a country that was um, many years ago governed by a foreign occupying power. And at that time, the green bone jade wearing um, warriors were a resistance organization. And uh, after the foreign power was expelled from the island, they essentially became a ruling class um, because they had they had um, overthrown this oppressive foreign government and they um, now had this whole network that used to be used for resistance fighting that got leveraged into business and, and rebuilding the country. And we come into the story at a period of time when um, the country has really grown and expanded and it's opening up to international trade and um, the that old war generation is dying out. And so you've got this, um, this generation that is still very much influenced um, and rooted in the history uh, and the nature of the clans, but has a whole new set of pressures. And in particular, that organization that was so united during foreign occupation has fractured into um, these two main clans um, that uh, end up vying for power, um, political power, economic power, territory of the capital city, um, and so on. And so um, the the characters are in the Call family are very much um, beholden to the fact that they're part of what is their what is in their 
world almost a semi-royal status because they are part of, of this ruling family that um, were the war heroes in their grandfather's generation. And uh, they are now coming into their own. Um, and the, the eldest brother, um, Lon, has taken over the reins of leadership from his grandfather, who was this huge war hero, but is now in his 80s and so can't really lead anymore. And he has a younger brother who is um, the military leader really in in the clan and is in charge of defending it from its rivals. And there's a prodigal daughter who has decided she wants to leave the clan behind and strike out on her own and be an independent um, and is coming back to the island at a, at a um, tense time. And then they have their younger adopted brother, Andon, who is a, a green bone in training. Um, and he's trying to figure out where he fits into the family and what he wants with his life. So um, those dynamics were sort of the heart of the story because um, it's really the relationship between these four siblings that drives a lot of um, the emotional narrative and makes them act in the ways that they do and puts them all in in the position that they're in. And um, as you noticed, and some of my other readers have noticed, they all end up having forced to do things they don't really want to do. And that is always a great place for an author to be in when you get to really put your characters in a pressure cooker and, um, and torment them in ways that, that make your readers uh, really worried for them. So um, that, that kind of combination of family drama and also sort of societal growth and change and the pull between modernity and tradition were all very much a part of the heart of this novel. Shay, the prodigal daughter that you mentioned, is in some ways a familiar figure, the person who tries to go off on her own and strike out an independent life. In Shay's case, she actually leaves Kekon. She goes to another country. She marries a non-Kekonese man. She gets a business degree. You know, she wants to get away. She wants to be independent. But as circumstances require it and her family really needs her, she ends up coming back and exhibiting all the cunning and the loyalty and the fearlessness of all her heroic forebears. It's been really fun to see the reader reaction to the different characters because um, previously I had written uh, books in which there's clearly one main character and you're following that character through the entire story and uh, what I loved about writing Jade City was that I had this tight-knit cast of characters that are family and so you see them from different angles and from points of view of other members in the family and so I now get the the um, pleasure of watching readers choose their favorites and argue about which character is their favorite. And some of them really, really love or dislike different characters. Um, and so that has been that's been fun. But um, Shay, yes, in in particular, um, has has I think a, a really strong emotional um, journey because of, you know, she is the character who in many ways kind of um, embodies this pull towards another life or a a modernization outside world. And yet is, is, is also very 
fiercely loyal to her family. And um, part of her character is due to the fact that, um, you know, I've written a world that is very patriarchal and um, has, uh, it's a, it's, it's a very um, machismo kind of culture. And so it's um, not easy to be a woman green bone um, in a society where, um, you know, warrior prowess is, uh, is revered and there's a, there's sort of patriarchal, um, culture and she is both um very ambitious and very talented um and sort of shapes at like the constraints that she's had to deal with um growing up and so part of her desire to leave is uh, trying to find a different way or get away from that uh but you know she's also she's also been raised in this and is and when she comes back in um to KCON, it's not quite so easy to forget the fact um that you know she's part of this family this famous um warrior family so um i i think the dynamics between the siblings and the fact that they each have really sort of a different role to play was one of the fun parts about writing this book I was thinking maybe we could take a moment and talk about Andon as well, who is the adopted sibling. And he is clearly one of the most talented up-and-coming Greenbones of his generation. And yet he also doesn't feel like he fits in. And there seem to be many reasons for this, because he was adopted by the Call family, because his mother killed herself, because he's gay... All those things uh, weigh on him, which make for a, another internal conflict. All your characters, they're all so conflicted. They're all <laughs> they these are. In, internal conflicts. That's clearly something uh, you're drawn to, though, I guess. And I guess any, any author, I mean, every character, we all have conflicts. So it's just a question of which ones you choose, I guess. Right. Yeah, Andin is um, a character that uh, is going to, not to have any spoilers um, for the rest of the series is going to continue to be um, a major player because he, you're right. He uh, is clearly a talented greenbone in training um, and is beholden to this family that adopted him and took him in when he was orphaned. Um, but he's also insecure and weighed down by kind of questions of um, you know, does he belong and uh, is this the life he wants? And he's worried in particular for himself because his um, mother didn't just uh, didn't just kill herself. She suffered from um, the itches, which is a side effect of jade poisoning. And so he knows he has that um, genetic predisposition and that is also something that he's worried about. So there's multiple reasons um, that that Andon has uh, ha- has some anxiety in his life, um, but uh, he's also he was also a good way for me as an author to show um, the environment of how like the green bones get trained, and because he spends a good part of the first of this book in um, the academy where the green bones are are trained to wear jade. So um, there's he's also um, because he's not an adult yet, uh, he's protected by the honor code that the Greenbones follow. And they, 
have a sort of strict cultural stigma against those who wear jade um, harming or targeting those who don't. So as long as he's in the academy and he's not wearing jade, he is ostensibly not a target, is safe, if you will. Um, and uh, once he puts that jade on, he will be—he knows he will become a target because he's this young, talented member of this family that is going into a war. I wanted to talk a little bit about the blend of East and West in the story. As you say, Kekan had freed itself from a colonial power. I, I wonder, you know, how that inspired you. There isn't a lot of talk consciously about colonialism in the story. It's more background. So I wondered how that helped inform you and the story, and if there was any messages that you were trying to communicate. So colonialism is a backdrop um, to the story, and I don't ever write anything with an explicit desire to send a message. Um, I like to take inspiration from history and from things that exist in our own world and try to create a secondary world that feels as absolutely grounded and real as I can possibly make it. I would like people to feel as if KCON could be a real place, as if you could go to John Loon and walk the streets and touch the bricks. Um, but I'm not trying to um, tell a story about colonialism. I'm trying to tell a story about the characters in this family. And the fact that um, colonialism is a part of the backdrop is um, largely because of the historical time frame that I set as an analog. Uh, so there were a couple of elements to that. Um, one of the inspirations for the Kekanese clans comes from the triads, which we now think of as a, are, as a you know, large um, Chinese organized crime group. But in their inception, um, they were not so. They were a secret society um, during the Qing dynasty that opposed foreign governance and wanted to restore um, you know, uh, the Ming dynasty. So they began as a, really as a resistance group. So that idea had some impact on um, the, the history that I built for the clans. And then I also wanted to set it in sort of latter half of the 20th century because um, you know, what is, what's a gangster story without cars and Tommy guns and men in suits with murder on their minds. So I had a very clear aesthetic as to what the story would feel like, would look like. And many of the mafia stories that we have in um, America date to the 1920s, right? The roaring twenties, um, the 1950s, which was the heyday of the five families of New York. So periods of time in American history where there was a great deal of economic growth as well as social change. And in East Asia, that really kind of corresponded to a post-World War II economic boom. That was when there was a huge amount of economic growth and a, you know, a reckoning with, um, with pr prior generations of colonialism and the growth of the Asian tigers, such as Singapore and Hong Kong and South Korea and Taiwan. 
so all those things kind of combined to make me want to create an aesthetic of an of a, a a world that felt clearly East Asian, but in latter half of the 20th century that was going through this growth that had this history of oppression from foreign powers and all that kind of mixed together um, as inspiration for for KCON. Um, I also um, think that, you know, that that I all the kind of colonial cues and history and so on um, just give the fantasy world a sense of actual time. Oftentimes we read fantasy stories where it doesn't feel like the world has um, a, a particular sense of progress. Sometimes you read you read fantasy worlds where it's like there's elves and dwarfs and orcs and so on, but it, it's like it's always been that way. It's always been in this sort of um, medieval kind of milieu. And um, I clear with where I was sitting in the historical analog that I was going to, I wanted KCON to feel like it had a real history. It had, it had been through these different eras. It had, it had gone through wars. It had gone through foreign occupation. It had achieved independence. So there's a sense of history and a sense of, of change. What an amazing job you've done in world building, because you have touched on all these things. You've created a history, you've created a religion, you've created a culture, you've created a family history, and none of those things are ponderous in any way. They're all woven together very concisely, subtly, so that as, as a reader, I felt like I was learning about this world very easily. You made it go down very smoothly. And it felt very familiar in some ways, even though it's very different. So it's really quite uh, quite an astounding uh, feat, I think, you've, you've achieved here. And my question is how you go about creating such an intricate world. And I, I read something you wrote where you answered a question that I think, actually, I don't know where I saw it now, where you said you couldn't have written Jade City as your first novel because it was just too complex. So I guess along the way in writing your first two books, you expanded your capacity to handle, you know, what it is incredibly, uh, truly a world. When people talk about world building, I guess some worlds are more intricate than others. So I'm just trying to imagine how you pull it together. Like, do you have a big chart on the wall with strings everywhere, you know, like, like <laughs> notes to yourself and you make a glossary for all the terms and here's the, here's the rule book for jade fighting and, you know. I, I, I'm curious if there's a way you could impart some of you know your process. I sometimes think that it's magic. Um, I, I, when pressed to say, well, how did I do it? I look back and I'm not entirely sure. And yes, some combination of all those things. I definitely had charts. I had spreadsheets. I had files filled with scribblings and writings. I had lots of images and maps I had drawn and um, backstory that I had written. So yes to all of those things, um, but also just time and growth as a writer. Um, I was writing other books while I was writing Jade City. From start to finish, I think Jade City took me uh, about three years while I was also working on other projects. And I had in my mind an idea of what it would be but it was 
um, I honestly didn't know if I had the chops to pull it, pull it off because it was such a ambitious project. And it, there was there were so many elements, and it was um, a complicated project. And then many times I um, put it aside for periods of time to work on other things, and then I would come back to it, and I would um, just keep layering it in. It really was the sort of project you could not just write it from start to finish and then do another pass over and then call it done. There were, there are so many passes over it um, and, and layering on all the different pieces that I wanted um, to work into it. And uh, trust me when I say that writing the second book is not any easier. <laughs> There's, it is, I'm doing that right now and it is still like the, multi-sided Rubik's cube. <laughs> I'm trying to often feel like I'm trying to fit together some jigsaw puzzle where I don't know what the final product looks like. And I have only the vaguest idea of even how many pieces there are going to be. And um, it's just this thing with all these, it, it's more akin to quilting um, than anything else. I'm trying to stitch it all into a coherent thing. Um, so, I, I would say um, definitely for me, it helped that I had written other novels. Uh, and, in my, and in my case, I'd written young adult novels, which were more tightly focused. Um, they're fast paced, single character, points of view. And they really taught me um, to write um, with focus and to be tight and to and to keep the story moving and that skill set helped me write Jade City because it otherwise might have sprawled out of control. And have you an outline for the the next book? And there are going to be three, right? There are going to be three. Yes. I mean, do you know how it ends? Is it you know clearly you're you're grappling with uh, the inner workings of it, but. I assume, and maybe you don't, have a, have a complete vision for at least the big plot points. Well, I do have a sense of where it's going. And I have, I oftentimes, when I, when I write books, I need to know how it begins and I need to know how it ends. And I need to know some of the main markers along the way. And um, in the case of, of this trilogy, I do have a sense of where it's going, but that's not to say everything won't change and get blown up somewhere along the way. Having an outline to me gives me enough courage to dive into the swimming pool. Um, but uh, beyond that, I've never written a book where I stuck with the outline and finished it and was like, well, that was that outline fit perfectly. That's never happened. And I don't anticipate that'll happen this time either. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about Jade City. Thank you, Rob. I've been speaking with Fonda Lee, author of Jade City. For more author interviews, check out the New Books Network. That's at newbooksnetwork.com. And Click on the Science Fiction Show link, or you can subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction on iTunes, or your favorite podcasting program or app. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. 
And please don't forget to leave a review if you've liked today's show. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Thank you so much for listening to today's show.